Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, uh, and welcome to The Legacy Tapes, a series of podcasts that explore how you can leave something lasting in the ephemeral medium of theatre. Uh, I'm Rebecca Atkinson-Lord, and I'm here with David Eldridge. Uh, David Eldridge is one of our nation's great playwrights. Um, his work's been on at the Royal Court, the Almeida, the National Theatre, and the Bush and the Finborough before that. Uh, you might have heard of his work, uh, Feston, Under the Blue Sky, Beginning, Market Boy, uh, In Basildon, and um, his work has, has sort of tracked the last two two decades, I reckon. Hi, David. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm all right. Yeah, good. People, really good. People always look really awkward when I do the introduction because that's like, they're like, what is it you're going to choose is interesting about me? Well, I always, I, 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 it's not so much that, it always sort of makes me want to laugh a bit. Just yeah. because you, you sort of think it's a bit pinch yourself, I think. Yeah, yeah. You, you know? Yeah. You suddenly find yourself in these situations, that's all really. But it was very nice, thank you. Oh, good. <laughs> is that, so the pinch yourself thing, is that because you didn't expect... Is that because you sound more successful than you feel you are? Or is that because you didn't expect to be this cool this cool and eminent playwright? Or what is the pinch yourself stuff about? God, well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> cool. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But all, okay, well, all, okay, now middle-aged, but what, maybe once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I, yeah, I think it's just that I, um, you know, I'm really pleased about the work that I've done over the years and, and, the, and the work that I continue to do. Um, but equally, there are things that I sort of uh, hoped might happen but never, ever expected mm-hmm. might happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, therefore, when some of these things have happened... You know, they are sort of sources of delight, and then when sort of people recapitulate them, then they seem quite funny. Yeah. That's all, you know. Yeah. And that's not that I'm not serious about what I do, it's just that um, I think that's what it is. There's kind of somewhere within it a source of delight that this thing that never seemed likely to happen has in fact happened a yeah. bit. Yeah, bloody hell, that happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, so, uh, we, so I, I'm talking because you listened to the Rupert Gould um, episode and liked it, and and I was like cheekily, "Will you come and will you be my guest?" Because yes. you're the first playwright guest, which is an interesting oh, great. thing. That's an honour. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, you can take it as an honour, but I think it's just ill thought out on my part, really. It's all right. <laughs> A happy accident. Yeah. Um, I'm really kind of curious because. When you're a writer, you leave something lasting, right? Like, you've got like, yes. books and shit. Yes. Um, so does that... Do, I mean, are you aware of your publications as this as this thing you will leave f- behind for your kids? Or is it... Or do you think of... Or do you think of what you do more as in the kind of the ephemeral theatre stage way? Well, I think... I think of what I do is in the is in the theatre of course mm. um, and and you're quite right to sort of talk about its ephemerality and stuff and um, 
And, I, and I've always liked the phrase that David Hare coined, the play is in the air, mm-hmm. which feels true to me. It's something I recognise as true, as something that's happening between an, between an audience and a live performance. Um, however, as you say, certainly within our current culture, you know, uh, the plays are published... You know, copies are lodged at the British Library. Yeah. You know, they're, they're you know... Uh, I remember I'm the first time I did that. I was like, oh, my God, it's like, it's meaningful. <laughs> yeah, Suddenly, yeah. <laughs> this piece of nonsense is meaningful. Uh, yeah, and of course, you're quite right in a way as well to mention children because I've got, I've got two sons and, you know, um, as someone who's sort of about to sort of hit, um, hit 46 in a couple of weeks, you... You do, you do sort of um, start to sort of very gradually sort of think about things in a slightly different way. I think, mm. you know what I mean, in terms of, in terms of life, and so, you know, it's become part of a mental checklist that I've sort of got, that obviously never happen if I get hit by a bus tomorrow. But like, if if must at some point um, have some copies of plays and odd reviews and put them in a box. Yeah. For the boys, in case anything happens to me, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so, totally. So they know what you work, what you achieved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but of course, in terms of the writing of the plays, I'm thinking about the play being on, mm. and sometimes I imagine the theatre that that I want the play to be on in, or that have commissioned the play as I write it, and sometimes I just imagine the location of the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely what I'm not thinking about is is the very nice Methuen yeah. publication of the play, yeah, yeah. you know, once yeah. it's all sort of happening, you know. Yeah. It exists in people's mouths, not on the paper when you're yeah. first writing it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the thing that I, I sort of talk about often, because it, it, it means so much to me, is that um, it's about sort of kind of 10 years or so ago now, it was kind of all around the same time, I was working on a version of John Gabriel Balkman mm-hmm. for the Donmar Warehouse that was done specifically, I knew that kind of Ian McDermott mm. and Penelope Wilton were going to be in it. So I sort of slightly, when I wrote the version, was was sort of listening to their voices all the time. So some of, you know, some of them somehow was in it. But I remember sort of Ian at the time talking about being being happy with my draft because it went at the speed of his thought and um, that was something that yeah I've really carried with me since then you know writing at the speed of an actor's thought Mm. and then around the same time there was one Sunday where um, where me and my ex-wife were just watching a bit of Sunday afternoon telly and there was this um, documentary about the fashion designer now since disgraced John Galliano Mm -hmm. and um, a woman that worked with him in his fashion house was saying that one of the reasons she thought he was such a great designer was because he designed for a body in motion Mm. not a tailor's dummy yeah and that kind of went kaplunk and I actually sort of sort of turned to sort of uh my ex-wife in a very ungoggle box like way and said oh I think that's what playwrights do yeah you know um and they're both of those things of uh you know they were they were articulations of things that I suppose I felt I was doing all along. It's yeah. just great when someone says something that distills something in such a clear way for yeah. you, you know? Yeah, huh. that makes sense. Yes, <laughs> now I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And totally, I, like, I really like that 
that thing about writing at the speed of the actor's thought because I think as a director one of the things that I spend so much time saying is let me see you have the fucking thought before you open your mouth yeah you know let, let me you know let me see that thing land in you and and have an impulse um so it's super like thanks that's useful for my job <laughs> well also as well it's like it's also you know the kind of writing that's kind of on the lot you know where kind of the thought is on the line you know like where it's really kind of moment by where it, it's moment by moment you know and i think genuinely it's something the more that you can you have to really kind of write for the present sense of the actor and the audience really so that they can exist beautifully together in the present tense you know and i think that you know that um i think it's it's one of the reasons often why actors make really good writers actually you know because it's something that's really in their their bones and often you know I mean, I was just talking about this last night to my partner about about an actor that I knew and was talking about how erudite actors are and how learned they are yeah. because they go off and do all these different jobs and learn about all these things, you know, and and um, and, and actors, I think, are often the most educated and erudite and literary people, but they don't necessarily come from kind of literary culture, mm. you know, which often I think, you know, really makes them really great playwrights often. And I think those of us that maybe don't start out as actors or performers in that sense, there's often a bit of a shaking off of that mm. kind of English lit culture a bit yeah. somehow, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and learning to not follow the rules or, or, or disregard the, 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 the weight of, it, of the canon almost when you need to. Think. Or, yeah. you know, argue with me. Yeah, yeah, no, but I agree with that. I mean, I think that I've been, I've been a writer that's always kind of been interested in kind of um, in both the kind of line that I stand in, but also kind of um, the form in terms of playwriting, in terms of models for the form. So, so just to put some kind of flesh on that thought. So, with a play like in Basildon. I, I really looked seriously at the four major Chekhov plays. Not so much because I wanted to somehow imitate a, a Chekhovian gesture or tone, but I was kind of more interested in seeing how he told a story in four acts and what that did yeah. and what were the pros and cons of that. But of course then when you when you do that, there's that and then there's the reality of what the characters are like when you bring them to life, yeah. you know. And um, and I sort of I sort of think that I I always have to kind of going back to that first thought of trying to create something that can be alive on the moment. Go back to kind of what what feels right and exciting moment by moment. So yeah, you might have spent all these weeks looking at these four act structures, but actually Ken wants to say this to Barry <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. therefore that's what so you're Ken's like. going to say it to Barry <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah of course yeah. yeah yeah it's interesting in that as well and I had a I had a really discovered a really good thing actually when I, I wrote the play Under the Blue Sky and this line which was that I I wrote the first act in a very structured way um, I kind of was like I kind of had this idea that that 
that um, modern audiences' kind of attention spans are kind of as long as an ad break or a pop song, probably. Okay. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous, really, but yeah. it's just uh, sort of something that kind of obsessed me a bit in my yeah. mid and late 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I sort Although of thought... now, like, ooh, three minutes for a pop song, that's a long that's time. That's a sure very that long now. time. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a world of 140 characters, no way. It's, a, it's an ice age, that now. But, um, but anyway, at the time... I sort of thought this and I thought, well, I had an idea of the shape and I thought, well, if these acts are roughly half an hour each, in this first act, at least 10, there's got to be at least 10 key bits of story. Mm-hmm. And I kind of I kind of worked it out in quite a rigorous way and then, and then, and then wrote it. And then, of course, there was discovery and deviation from that, that plan as I brought the characters to life. But kind of, you know, it, it kind of, like, I felt as well that I kind of each hit, 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 hit each kind of note and that, you know, as I, as I kind of hoped I might. Now, you get to act two, and I thought, well, this worked out great, and mm. this is what I think the story is going to, is, and I'm going to try and do the same for act two. Um, but basically, it was a complete failure because the characters were drunk, Mm-hmm. You know, the characters are drunk and trying yep. to have sex with each other at one in the morning. And the characters just would not... Conf- that, that kind of sort of... That sort of... Sl- that kind of disciplined writing which worked really well for two characters who were very tense and uptight and having the first drink of the evening... Yeah. Did not work at all for these two people that were pissed out of yeah, their yeah. minds, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of had to abandon that, really, and kind of find a different way of shaping that mm-hmm. part of the play, you know? Yeah, because they just wouldn't do what they were told. Yeah, like, of course. Like, it didn't fit, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, you know. Yeah, nice. Um, uh, I'm going to... Um, just because we were right at the start, I'm going to try and wrestle it back to the topic, which I shit at always. No, no, no. But, you know, let's do it now, and then we can, and then we can deviate. Um, tell me how you... Like... Tell me how you got here, basically. How did you, like, here in this office at Birkbeck, where you are, uh, where, where you teach um, writing, how did you get from your first day at primary school or whatever to here? Why the hell and how? Well, I think, um, I think you know, without taking 15 hours or anything, I, I was a bright kid and I definitely was interested in... Uh, I had a kind of uh, vibrant imagination and I enjoyed doing bits of creative writing. Mm. Um, but, um, like, and I went through my school school career like that, do you know what I mean, at junior school. Um, when um, I was coming up to going to senior school, I, um, I had parents who were from a very sort of working class, blue collar type background, um, EastEnders had moved out in the 1970s to Essex and um, and I had an uncle who had done alright for himself who suggested that you know that because the schools weren't very good in Romford at that time mm. particularly the secondary schools that I should be put forward for sort of grammar schools and private schools mm-hmm. and and um, so my kind of parents sort of in a slightly sort of befuddled way I think really just sort of thought why not with the encouragement of a teacher as well at my, my, my junior school. Mm. And I think much to everyone's amazement and delight, I got in all, all of them. 
and all of these places offered, you know, um, you know, part scholarships. I don't think I was actually offered a full scholarship for anywhere, actually, but mm-hmm. it, it was irrelevant because I was offered a part scholarship um, and the other 50% would be made up by the Local edu- Education Authority Assisted Places Scheme, okay. which existed then. Yeah. Actually, I think something that's morally wrong, and I'm quite glad that the Labour government abolished it mm. in the when they came in in the 90s, but I, I, it's just true that I did benefit from yeah. it, you know. Um, uh, so I, I, I guess I benefited then from the age of sort of 11, 12 with this kind of public school education. Um, but uh, still nothing to do with writing or drama. Mm. I was more interested in getting through. A sc- I didn't feel like I belonged at school. I didn't enjoy it very much. I kept my head down, played a bit for the school football team. Mm-hmm. I think I was really focused on being Mr. Average and Mr. Get Through It Without Being Noticed. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And it was basically when I was a sick former, went into sick form to do A levels. There was kind of a kind of a trinity of things that came together, really, which was that I'd started to really enjoy school because I was concentrating on three A-levels that I wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, you actually gave a shit about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was English, history and politics, and yeah. they're still my great loves in a way. Yeah. Uh, it's the first thing. Second thing, like, through my teenage years, it was, it was just horrifying, kind of having a kind of a, a home life where we had no money. Mm-hmm. And the house looked terrible. I never had any friends from school home because I was too embarrassed. Um, had a complete divide in my life between home life, having a, a job in Romford Market as a teenager, and then putting on a horrible grey tweed school uniform and going to school and being a public school boy. And kind of, in, as a kind of 17-year-old going into sick form, I sort of, like, some strange kind of penny started to drop. As girls appeared in sick form, it was an all-boys all school, school until that point. And, you know, guys at school, you know, like started to get into kind of the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and go to... Like, there's, you know, that kind of... Probably because of the kind of school that I was at, people really conformed right through adolescence, really, right up until sick form. Mm. And it was almost like people started to break out in sick form and suddenly find different kind of countercultural sort of, um, you know, expressions of themselves. Yeah. So all of this kind of happened sort of together. I realised actually that kind of, you know, I was probably a bit more interesting to the girls on the basis of having a bit of edginess. So actually it wasn't necessarily <laughs> to con- something to conceal. Yeah. You know, I had kind of, I sort of found mates at school that were interested in similar things to me, you know, I didn't. And there was a new drama teacher at school. Mm. And I took the very ignoble decision to do a GCSE in drama alongside my levels because I thought it would be a bit of a dos. Yeah. Um, little did I know that within a few weeks it would literally transform my life, you know. Yeah. And that is how I got here, you know. I mean, you know, we, we I could spend another 15 hours talking about every nook and cranny of this, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but essentially that's that's, that's kind of thing. got that's me first. on to kind of being directed into this kind of world and then kind of running into this world, really, you know, because when I kind of thought this is what I want to do I want to be a part of this I did everything that I could to mm. to work hard towards that yeah. you know so yeah yeah that's kind of how it how it happened really I think because I think 
I mean, it's, it's super interesting um, hearing you talk about that because I think because I'm I'm from not such a different background, um, and I was a scholarship kid at an independent school as well, and I think definitely, I mean, my pa- my parents would quite on the whole quite culturally engaged because my dad's a potter yeah so but he'd been a craft potter in the 1670s so it was like a trade almost yeah. rather than this high art so if i ever call him an artist he sort of swears at me because he's not it's not yeah, yeah. like it, you know um and so yeah I, th- I think my school drama teacher was the first was the reason that i do this now yeah um just because it and and I I can't quite place why I found it transformative why it was so compelling other than just this place to imagine and be other Um, I think there's something something in me about being greedy for more life like I know I'm going to die so let's see if we can get 80 other lives in here that's 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 what I'm doing Um, so it's just sort of interesting hearing you talk about that because I I, I mean I remember reading your blog yeah. Um, how's Rascal still? Arrived? He's not. He's, oh. he's not. He's died. He died last sorry. year, actually. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so sorry. That's, That's all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember reading your blog, and I remember, you know, I remember Market Boy, and um, and like just just your some just your work kind of hitting the culture as I was sort of becoming a, like a professional theatre maker. Sure. And sort of being really sort of aware of you as this art uh, like icon of kind of icon of like working class lad done good right if, if you'll <laughs> if you'll forgive me and then and it's sort of, and it's sort of really interesting for me now to meet you and i'd never twigged that you'd that you'd gone to independent school and you'd had that similar journey to me until literally researching for this podcast so it's super super interesting to come across that and well I, people ignore yeah. it they say, i mean this is the thing i mean maybe i'm you know like amongst all the different things maybe that happen as you get into sort of what we call middle age and think about maybe I'm becoming slightly more cynical Mm. maybe now than I was 10 years ago but but you realize that people tell the story that they want to tell and I think that (laughs) quite often the story that people wanted to tell about Mm me wasn't one that involved the public school bit yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know? Because that's just a bit complicated, a bit complex. Yeah, and I think, and also, and I think that's not just journalists. I think, you know, you know, you know, I, I should have kind of twigged onto this at my very first experience of being in the theatre, which is that on my very first press night in the professional theatre, Bush Theatre, February 1996, mm-hmm. serving it up. As me, kind of 22, shitting myself. That's I need a drink. Classic Mike Bartlett era, right? Oh, no, I'm before Mike Bartlett. Fuck, okay. Yeah, no, 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 okay. I, I'm, I'm before Bartlett. Um, but basically, um, and so there I am, crapping my pants. Um, and I'd gone to the Bush Bar and ordered myself a gin and tonic. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, obviously worried about ha- having needing a wee, the, you know, and all that, and the old Bush. Oh, yes, yeah, so and not a pint. Sensible, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to pee, yeah. And, um, and Deborah Eden, who was the general manager of the Bush, yeah. literally snatched it out of my hand and said to me, We don't want Michael Billington seeing you drinking a gin and tonic. And she took my gin and tonic and she bought me a pint of lager. And then I, I remember really laughing and thinking it was funny. And I still think it's funny, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's. It's, you know, people, you know. I think that we we in the theatre are also complicit a bit sometimes in yeah, totally. the stories we want to tell about 
you know, like identity. Yeah. yeah, of course. And I mean, you know, like Simon Stevens is an old mate, you know. And um, if you talk to Simon, there's a lot of complexity to Simon. But probably insofar as often insofar as theatre is concerned, and then often insofar as uh, the media is concerned, he's a rock and roll playwright, isn't he? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The boy that should uh, should really be in a be fronting a rock band, <laughs> but he's a playwright, you know. And um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that, you yeah. know. That's something that he laughs about himself. But but you know, so so with regards to me, yeah, you know, the kind of independent school stuff often. Yeah, it just slips away. It, it, you know, it can slip away, but it's something I've never denied, and I'm always quite happy to talk about because, to me, it partly, you know, the, the duality of it. I think most writers are outsiders in some way, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and I think actually looking back, probably the duality of it, and not feeling, from the age of twelve, sort of not feeling, you know. Like one of them. One of them, mm. but also increasingly... Not one of the other ones either. Not from home, you yeah, know, like yeah. shades of kind of David David Story. I mean, yeah. this is what Story wrote again and yeah. again and again, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, um, you know. I mean, it's, it's sort of apogee in a way is in the March on Russia, you know, where that David Story type writer comes home yeah. for the family celebration around the parents' anniversary, you know. And, you know... But but you know that gives you a perspective. You know I I I think you know on it gives you a different perspective on the kind of uh, on the tri- on the tribe. You know because it means I think that you you can you can kind of both be within it and without it, which is great as a writer. Remember Peter Gill talking to me about the royal family. Peter Gill absolutely yeah. lo- loved, and I assume still loves the royal family, and he used to watch it. And then and I remember having tea with him one afternoon and saying, talking about the royal family and how brilliant it was and all the rest of it. And he, he said, he, he said, well, darling, you know... Um, you know, to insert, observe and inhabit at the same time, you have to be cutting with diamond, and she's cutting with diamond. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so you know, like, and I, I think, you know, I think, I think, um, and that's why I think sometimes <laughs> being an outsider in a way within a world, yeah, uh, both within and without a world, is sort of actually sort of you. It's useful as a writer, actually. I think. Yeah. It's definitely because I, I made a show a couple of years ago called The Class Project um, because, um, for, because of this exact thing, this sense of... Like, I used to, I used to run um, a theatre oval house in yes, South London. Yes, yes, I know, yes. And a big part of the agenda there is about uh, giving access to the mainstream narrative to folk that probably don't get it yeah. all the time. And I spent so much fucking time being shushed because I was too posh to talk about something. And I was like, I'm literally the only person in this room that didn't go to fucking Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off. Um, And it used to frustrate me so much because because I'd done this, because, you know, I'm I'm a Thatcher's child and I'd done this thing of, like, social mobility and I've I've always done everything I was ever supposed to fucking do and I can pass with the best of them. But I'm still from there. And just the tension of that and being, and, and feeling like, I, you know, I to to be in the room, I had to own a certain identity, but by owning that and being in the room, that that ruled me out from having a point of authority on 
anything that wasn't to do with posh middle class waitro yeah. shopping um, and so uh, yeah I just I, I, I'm, su- I'm super aware of that kind of outsiderness um, on all you know I can't go home I'm totally like the posh arty one even though my parents are technically artists yeah. um, but I do things like oh, well have you read and they're like no <laughs> obviously not yeah. we haven't done that yeah. um, but, but also I sort of I sort of swim through the theatre ecology and and there are all of these tiny reminders you know there are all of the friends who were at my level who were really struggling to get along yeah. but they're struggling to get along in a rent free house that was their parents house in London and yeah. I'm struggling to get along fucking paying ridiculous amounts of rent you know yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just all of a sudden there are these little differences that cast me as an outsider and I'm sort of really curious about this is this is not my podcast. I should shut up. No, but I'm just no, kind of right. curious about like that what what that interstitial ugh, liminal ugh, space is that is none of the things that people want to put you in, and like what it is to swim in that. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of I haven't got a question. I'm just talking. About well, I think that I, I think as a writer, I think that you can make you can try and make work that explores that mm. that space that you've described that complicated area. And I, and and um, and equally not feel that it's it's your responsibility to do that either. I mean, I think from a personal point of view, I think sometimes I write in a way that really does occupy that mm-hmm. space. So I think beginning is probably quite a good example of that. It's maybe the best example where the kind of they're kind of both oddly classless in a way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or they've been removed from their original classes somehow yeah. because of what they've lived through, you know, to get to this point. Um, both of them knocking forty, and I think then then there are other there are there are other things that I do that kind of go to. M- 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 either kind of kind of either pole of my kind of experience, if you like. So. Mm you know, kind of in Basildon is really getting quite rootsy, although there's this kind of middle-class playwright in it, is really quite getting rootsy. And a play like The Knot of the Heart is really about, is writing in a world that I find myself in rather than one I mm. kind of come out of. So, so, um, so, but I, I suppose in a way as a writer, this is something I don't particularly agonise over. I just sort of think, I kind of want... I'm going to get in there somehow. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Try and find a way of getting in there and having a kind of a rummage around. I mean, I do... I mean, I would say, Rebecca, though, that I think that... While I've always had a keen sense over the years of things that I don't want to write or that would feel strange for me to write, yeah. I do think that... Um, I do think actually that there is some kind of kind of responsibility somehow as well mm-hmm. for me to think about the time and energy that I've got and, and what I suppose I can bring to the table as a writer and an artist and whether I really ought to be doing that when someone else can. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think a really yeah, yeah. and that's not something that I has affected me particularly in the theatre. But, like, for example, there was a TV thing I'm working on at the moment. Um, it's a book that I read um, year before last, a novel, and I thought it was a, it, I think it was fantastic. It was a no-brainer for telly. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and I'm, I'm I I kind of had had a had lunch with this TV producer. Like um, it was ridiculous after be- after beginning opened at the national. Like yeah. you, you, you know, all these ridiculous people are ringing you up, going, "Can we have lunch?" We remembered you. Uh, we remembered you. Yeah, we'd forgotten about you. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Do you remember me? We did meet three years ago, um, and they're saying that suddenly. Um, but on on this lunch, and I sort of was a bit too busy to take anything new on, and I'd said that I said it'd be it's be good to make a relationship. So we're sort of having our lunch in Clerkenwell and I started to talk about this book I'd read. And, mm. and, and then this producer, who I'm now working with, was thought I was pitching her. And yeah. I said, no, 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 I, 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 I'm too busy. But in any case, you know, this book is about this woman who's hitting 30, um, who is deciding to give up drink because she feels like she's destroying her life. And... Um, I don't think this should be written by me. I think there's a practical practical issue um, that's to do with, you know, the fact that this character's a millennial, then I'm, you know, I, I'm a Gen Xer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I really am a different generation now. There yeah. must be someone better than me to write this book, write a version of this book. But also, like, you know, if there are all these different possibilities which I think there are for any writer, whether you're being commissioned or not, mm. you have choices about what you what you put your energy and your thought and your creativity into. Should I really be doing that? Shouldn't actually this be someone else do it? You know, I, you know sh- shouldn't actually... There are all sorts of brilliant women mm-hmm. who are in their early 30s. You know, I, I can mention half a dozen now. Shouldn't one of them be doing this? And... You know, what was great, actually, was that a couple of weeks later, they rang me up and said, we've read the book, we think you're right, it's a no-brainer for telly, we know you don't want to do it, and we think you're right, it probably it should be, but do you want to be an exec producer on it? So it's been really fun, I've been an exec producer on this project, and Millie Thomas is doing it, yeah. you know, and she's done a fantastic job for us, she's written a fantastic script. Can you tell yeah. us what it's called? Yeah, it's called So Happy, so Happy It Hurts. Right. It's a lovely book, and... Um, you know, and she's perfect, and that feels to me entirely right. All yeah, of that, yeah. you know, yeah. all of that feels entirely right. Um, so you know, it's. Um, I suppose. I suppose I'm kind of. Um, I'm kind of on the one hand joining you in resisting being put in my box. Yeah. Um, while at the same time going, you know, when I'm reaching for something or something seems like a good idea, there's also a separate conversation really about, you know, is this kind of really what I want to do, mm. you know? And allied to that are all sorts of questions, other questions actually, you know, because um, I think that... I think sometimes, you know, um, I don't know about other writers, sometimes... There's an incredibly romantic thing about an idea. But other times it's actually a kind of... With me, I think it's more of a keen sense of something nagging away at me that won't go away. And actually, I fall more in love with it when I've really got into it. Yeah. So, So for me, it would be wholly false to sort of say that there's this kind of... There's always this burning thing to do this... It's much more about a discovery of 
something as I do it and then suddenly you know when you're into it you sort of suddenly realize how much you love this and how it's a finding of it and actually the things that aren't like that are the are the plays or screenplays that you get 15 pages in and there's nothing in this you know yeah um it was a bit of a rambly kind of bit but um no i think there's a lot in it like i i'm curious because you you said a thing about um is this the thing that i want to do um and sort of handing it over to to to, to a, a younger woman and, and great please please to everyone that's listening please give more jobs to women thanks yeah of course um, but because um, the, there's also something about i was really interested in the way you came at it which is is this the thing that i want to do and what i hear more of in the culture right now is am i allowed to do this yeah and so i was just super interested in your in your framing of that 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 was interesting uh, that's the end of the question, really. Like, is that like, are you conscious of, like, in that decision, were you were you conscious of a cultural shift that pushes you towards choosing that you didn't want to do it, or was it just about this isn't this is going to be fucker to right because I I'm not in that voice or what? I think what? it was all of the above. Yeah, I think it's all of, I think it's all of the above. You know, and I think that that's. That's in in entirely right to be thoughtful. Mm. This is to me. This is all evidence that we're of progress. Actually, you know, to me, yeah, yeah. you know that we're thoughtful about these things. I think, um, but I, I what I recognise actually is that I do. Like I don't, I don't, and I mean maybe this is kind of just a kind of. Um, because I'm in a privileged position because of the work that I've done over the last 20 or so years now. But I, you know, I don't, I don't feel that I kind of need to ask permission mm. to write something. You know, the only person I need to ask permission to write something on something is, my, mm-hmm. is myself, you yeah. know. But I also think, Rebecca, that that's probably something I felt when I was 21, when I first started writing. That you did need to ask me. No, that I didn't. You didn't. No, right, okay. that if I want to write something, yeah. then I should have a go at it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, along the way, I might discover that, one, this is not a good idea, <laughs> or that uh, because of various practical reasons, or that I can't do this, or that actually I'm not the right person you know there are all mm. sorts of things i've tried to write over the years that have never seen the light of day yeah. and that don't get further than five pages but i've never had um i, I di- i've never thought do i have permission to write this um and maybe that's a kind of a generational thing mm. um it, it quite possibly is you know mm. it's been you know i think i think um I think with So Happy It Hurts, you know, and that novel, I just didn't think it was right for me to do it, you know, which is a slightly different thing, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, I just didn't think it was right for me to do it. Um, I thought, it, you know, I thought it should have been be being written by a Millie, yeah. if I can put it in that yeah, way, yeah. you know? And I thought that... Um, you know, for practical reasons as well, you know, like, it, it, you know, I was busy anyway. I think even if I hadn't been so busy, you know, I've kind of, I've never, I've, 
I've always known that it's a bad idea to do things that are wrong for me to do and also just like to earn money Mm. and um and like there've been believe me there've been periods when I've been really 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 skinned and um and I'm not very well off now either you know I'm a playwright um <laughs> but you know <laughs> yeah but I I I sort of have known you know that one you know if you kind of chase something just because someone else really wants you to do it or because it's a money job then I'm probably not going to do it kind of really yeah. re- really well and also like you always kind of, you end up earning the money from things that are really good pieces of writing you know so I've always known a thing that I need to try and keep my nerve as much as possible you yeah. know and it like, can be a bit hairy hard, though, yeah of course it's hard yeah, yeah. of course it's hard yeah. you know you know people you know I'm sure people think you know when they read my tweets and all that I think you know oh he's probably made now but but, but I'm you not. Never are. No, I don't think. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that are, but you never are. No, I I yeah. always think I'm I'm no more than a few months away from disaster at any given oh, Jesus, point. Jesus, I'm not even a month. Well, that, yeah. Well, I mean, and I guess for me, you know, that yeah, feels like a real improvement on what it would have been <laughs> ten years ago. Yeah. Of course, yeah, sure. for it to be, you know, maybe I'm kind of, you know, maybe it's more on the scheme of like three months or six months now, but. You know, um, but in terms of the writing, I come back to come back to that you know thing, which is that um, it's really I really have to try and do something that I feel is right to do. Mm. It's a kind of hard thing to explain that in some senses as well, because because as I say, I'm not. I, I've never been particularly a writer as well that kind of is like it's got this kind of romantic passion for an idea that mm. would be burning away it's much more of a kind of a nagging thing so there's more of a sense of me trying to listen to whether something's really nagging away yeah. at me or not you know and um, and I you know and that that's what I try to listen to and then I'll and then I'll get into it. There's a kind of sense of where that's where that sense of whether something is right for me to do or not, I think, comes from. Whether I should get try and get into something or not. Does that make any sense? Or yeah, sound banal? No, it totally does. Like I really <laughs> recognise that sense of like something that niggles at you. Yeah. Like yeah. I like because in the work that I make, that's kind of more contemporary performance style. Yeah. That I, I I mean I could just say that I write it, but I feel like I don't want to claim that necessarily. Um. There's yeah. It's always about this thing that's like for fuck and and, yeah, yeah. and and ultimately what comes out is me trying to understand the irritation. Yeah. It's the pearl around the bit of grit, right? Yeah. Like it's just trying to like neutralize it somehow. Um. And then, and sometimes, if if I haven't got enough complex thought around that, it just stays fucking irritating until I have the appropriate amount of thought. Yeah. Or not, or I have to give up. Yeah, I re- I recognise that. I mean, there's been a play. There's a the next play that I want to write is an idea that I've had. You know, um, well, there are two actually, both ideas that I've had for quite some time mm. that ni- that niggle away at me. And both things, one one is a commission and one is not a commission. And in the last sort of 18 months, I've, I've ha- had a go mm. on both of them. 
and had false starts on both of them. And um, and I, I sort of think it's my own version of what you describe in terms yeah. of your practice as enough complexity of thought around it, you know, that that I think with with both of them somehow I was getting into writing out the kind of idea mm-hmm. rather than it being really this kind of this kind of living thing yeah and what is the real I think somehow as well it's like what like what is really sitting under underneath this you know Mm. Um, which is not is not the same as what Ted Hughes called his hidden most like is which is the really really deep reason that a writer might not even be aware of so it's not quite that, but it's something that's maybe the kind of layer above that mm. somehow. Um, and in both of those plays, I haven't quite somehow got to that yet, you know. Mm. And I, I'm hoping that I will at some point, you know. Yeah. Because I'd like to write those plays, but we'll see. Because you'll have to give that commission feedback if you don't. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of mad, isn't it, all of that? It's sort of... Um, you know, I've never sort of not delivered on a commission, but sometimes I have had commissions for years and years, mm. you know? Yeah. And I think I think I think probably because the commission's for the Royal Court and the Royal Court's not necessarily hard up for a few quid. Um it probably doesn't matter too much. I think I think though that when writers have sort of commissions from small companies then mm then you you know you can't have that you you have to really write that you have to really make the world yeah and it's tough isn't it because i i really am i'm a big fan of procrastination like and you can't i i don't think you can make the thing until you're ready to make the thing and and i i tell people all the time that if what you need to do to make the thing is eat ice cream and watch friends for a day that's probably what you should do yeah yeah um or something more erudite um yeah and so i guess the royal court have the they've got the resources to resources to allow that artistic freedom allow things to come ready to prove right but if you you know i couldn't for my company we couldn't do that if we no well also as well the court over commission you know you know and um Obviously, that's a separate argument, you know, about, you know, how, how much companies should commission or not. Um, but I think, you know, I think with the smaller companies, you really, you you know, you really have to kind of honour that situation, you know, as a writer. And I think also as well, I mean, I, I, off, I, you know, I, I over the years have tried to be a big one on writers taking responsibility in various ways. And, um, you know, I'm a member of the Writers Guild and I am often at the end, in the old days, was at at the end of a phone for people to ring me up about things and now it's at the end of an email. Mm. Um, And, you know, I'm always very sympathetic to other writers, but I also, you know, often those conversations with writers about how they're being treated by management or whether they're unhappy or not, Mm. one of the things I always say is, is... is well they've broken the contract but it sounds like you broke the contract first because in your contract it will have said that you write the play within a year that's generally what's within a a writer's contract and no one probably except Mike Bartlett maybe writes a play within a year yeah 
so writers are always the first people to break the contract. So we're never... Now, this isn't justifying a management treating a writer poorly in any way, but just remember that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when, you know, we have to, you know, because, because in this discussion all we have is the contract and actually if you've taken two and a half years to write a play that you were meant to write in a year, then <clears throat> what can you say when a theatre is meant to reply to you within however many weeks it says in a standard ITC contract, you know, and, you know, five months later you haven't had a reply, you can't mm. really say anything, you mm. know? So, of course, you can say something, but do you know what I mean? You know, so, so yeah, it's very, <clears throat> it's very different. It's a very different thing, you know. Um, but I, I, you know, it's interesting in terms of my own. You know, I really don't. What I really don't like though is kind of writers just taking commissions for the sake of it. You mm. know, mm. it's 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 that I think is a bit silly. I mean, that play for the court, it's. Um, I just, you know, it's a, it's to it's to write something, a very specific thing for Maxine Peake and Rory Kinnear to do together, and and I just my marriage broke up in the middle of it, and it sort of was a bit of a big thing that happened, yeah. literally halfway through writing the play, and it's been really difficult to refine. Was very difficult to, to go re back yeah, to that place. because I felt like I was almost a completely different person. Yeah within a year yeah. and then and then and then you know it slightly becomes a different issue which is I still think it's a great idea I'd still like to put those two people together in the theatre downstairs and the story I've got I think is still a really good story to tell but somehow the whole you know the whole reason for telling that story in 2019 as opposed to 2012-13 I haven't quite refound why it is that I want to Mm. tell this particular story you know so so I think kind of that's okay and I think theatres understand that sometimes people are ill and sometimes yeah. they get divorced and sometimes Life they have happens. babies and yeah. sometimes they have a terrible period of writer's block I, I think managements know all this but um, but uh, you know that's much tougher on the small companies for sure yeah. <laughs> I uh, I um I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna resist my urge to get sidetracked. Um, coming back to something you said ages ago, which was about being uh, right. Okay, being having benefited from the assisted places scheme. Yes. Um, and finding that morally objectionable now. Yeah. And you're glad that that's been done away with, and um, and so you're just thinking because I'm just kind of thinking about your. Because you talked about politics and history as your like loves yeah. alongside the literature, um, what are you like? Do you th do you think of what you're doing as as a as a theatre um, as a writer as a playwright or screenwriter? Do you think of that consciously in terms of it having an impact? Are you trying to change something, or? Is that incident like why? Why are you doing this? Is the simple question. Well, I, I am. I, I think I am trying to change something, mm. but I think what I'm trying to do is to is to change a person in some way, right? Rather than necessarily to think that I think there are very few works of art mm. or dramas that have um, that kind of 
change society or politics have a kind of immediate mm-hmm. effect. There are some examples, like there was that French-Algerian film, I think, is it Days of Glory? Brilliant war film mm. about these uh, soldiers from North Africa that served with the French army in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way they were treated then was abysmally by the French government. Mm-hmm. I think President Mitterrand saw the film and it led to a change in the yeah. law. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. That's nice. yeah, yeah. But I think that those examples are few and far between. Mm. So I prefer to operate on the level of trying to have uh, an effect on an audience, on and primarily on an emotional level, because I think that's how you affect people the most if people and that's feel how we something. Actually, make decisions. We yeah. rationalise them after the fact. Uh, I, do, I mean, I do like an audience to really, of course, engage with ideas. And when I go to the theatre, I like to engage with mm. ideas. Um, but primarily I'm trying to affect an audience emotionally um, and and that's what I'm trying to do so I am trying to bring change in some small way um, I you know I um, I think that the plays are political but they're kind of not obviously political mm-hmm. uh, like you know, I try as I get older to be um, circumspect about what critics say about work, you know? Mm, yeah. But I, I've got to admit, I loved it when Susanna Clapp said in a review of Embazledon that she suddenly realised that she was watching a political play. Because I think that that's my intention a little bit. So I like to do a bit of the Trojan horse stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I'm really trying to do that in telly at the moment, the TV work I'm doing, really, you know, using genre as a way of exploring things mm. like England post-Brexit, the NHS, things like that, yeah, you in know. In a way that makes people, like, there's a show that I've been watching recently, uh, and I can't remember who writes it, so I'm not going to name it. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but, yeah, it's so, like, it's so bleak that I've had to stop watching it. And I think if I could watch it to the end... It would prob like it would probably be informative, and I might think differently. Yeah. But it's so bleak; I just can't. I just, I, I can't. I can't keep sitting with that as the possible future, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. So I like stealth, meaningful. Yeah. yeah, but also these things come from our own experiences, and and you know, so we sort of right at the beginning of our chat, we're talking about the fact that thing how things changed for me as a sick former, you know. And, and one was doing the GCSE in drama where we were improvising mm. and I'd never ever had any experience of it. It was a very sporty yeah. private school. Yeah, yeah. And this woman, Ruth Brown, was brought in to kind of up the drama in the school, basically. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe it. We were kind of making stuff up on our feet, you know. And that, and, and then the other thing was that I, I went to see my first proper play, age 17, which was King Lear. Yeah. And the emotional force of it and I really believe that, like, one of the things that often drives artists is kind of being inspired by those things that first have that powerful effect on us. Now, for me, it's, a, it's primarily as a playwright and a screenwriter. Mm. For someone else as a pianist, you know, mm. it might be some concert they were first yeah, taken yeah. to or whatever. But, you know, the emotional force of John Wood's King Lear, and particularly the end, you know, and it, it's meant that, I am drawn towards trying to make work that has a as a as a that tries to have a powerful emotional effect on an audience. You know, I mean, as it happens, I quite like giving people a good time and making people laugh too. 
along the way because mm-hmm. I think that's another way that we really connect with people. But that, but probably the first thing is is what John Osborne called giving audiences lessons in feeling. That's mm-hmm. what he wanted to do mm. as a young playwright. He wanted to give an audience a lesson in feeling, and um, you know, I, I that's what I like to do. And you know, I don't you know, like to see people upset by my work, but I like people to cry. Yeah, maybe (laughs) cry them out of upset. Yeah, yeah, you know, there have been, you know, you know, so for example, you know, like I never, so I don't, it's not the, so I'm not so interested in shock and awe. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. A kind of shock and yeah. awe type work where you terrify or you really shock or you really upset an audience. Mm. And and I've had two plays where sometimes there have been audience members, I think, that have genuinely been triggered and upset by the plays. And mm. that's something I've not not liked at all. But, of course, when you see an audience member who's really engaged in something and they wipe away some tears or they laugh at a joke or they're really sitting forward and you know they're really engaged with the story mm. then that's that's what it's brilliant that's what we that's what I feel we're trying to do right so yeah. that's brilliant yeah but that all comes you have to kind of engage with people I think you know and um, you know I um, I think that's how you persuade people you know to think about the world in a different way and how you get people to em- to empathise and stand try and stand in someone else's shoes mm. at least for a couple of hours, you know? Yeah, totally. You know, and I, I know from my own theatre going, you know, that when you... I just love it when you come out of a theatre and have a sense somehow that the world is slightly different because of the play. I mean, that's what you want, right? Like, yeah. You want to leave and... And the trees are filled with angels, or whatever, or like it's different. The, the, you you leave into a different reality to the one you entered from. Yeah. Well, I I, I the one that's coming to mind for me is um, is, Le- is Leo Butler's play about that that kid that young kid that was on at the Almeida. Isn't it called Boy? Boy, that's it. Yeah. Boy, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly right. It was the escape of me for a minute, and um. And I remember sort of walking uh, from the Almeida up to Highbury and Islington um, to get on the tube. And I just just look, I somehow was looking at Upper Street in a different way. Yeah. You know, and yeah, probably, you know, probably kind of by the time I was having a coffee the following morning... Uh, maybe you know the the world kind the of had, returned. Yeah, had re- reassembled into yeah. kind of my my sort of you know standard perspective of it. But like, but it left its trace for yeah. sure because I'm still talking about it. What three or four years yeah. later? That's a real memory of kind of looking. You know, I remember particularly noticing the homeless people actually mm-hmm. on on Upper Street, and maybe I wouldn't have quite the same way. You know, um, I think my equivalent of that because I've had some of those in different ways. I think my equivalent is um, remember Wallace Shawn did the fever. At the oh court? yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. that, and I sort of left. I, I felt like I, I mean I left transformed and I left thinking and feeling differently about the world. Yeah. And I, I remember being like, "Fuck, I like I want to do that to yeah. people," and um, and then talking to someone about it. In a job, in like in a you know an interview for one of those 
director's awards or whatever and they're being like oh well it's not really a play is it and I'm like fuck off like it meant some you know I was so I remember being so hurt by how dismissive that particular person was of it and it was really like I I needed to I treasured it in a way that I think it's really rare to treasure an experience what was it you were interested in to do with the the assisted places scheme and all of that. I oh, feel like we've oh, ripped no, off no, 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 it's all, it was just, a, because because I was just kind of conscious of you. Oh, it's to do the politics. Yeah, of, yeah. Of the politics and just being aware that you're like, I benefited from that, but I also, you said something like, I benefited from that, but I object to its existence or something, you know. Oh, well, I just think that private so, schools should, if 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 they, they should, in, they should have many more scholarships and bursaries that they, that they fund themselves, or they should have the, charitable state has taken away you know I think it's quite simple really and I think the idea that local you know I think it's with a noble yeah, a yeah. sort of noble intent that local local authorities could send working class kids to get a private school education mm. you know um, as a very is a noble objective but when you think about it, you know, I think... It would be much more noble to just fix the state fucking education. Well, exactly, you sort of take the words out of my mouth. (laughs) And for independent schools to do the right thing, you know? So so that's why I sort of thought that that, that the Blair government were right to get rid of that, you know? Um, And I do, you know, I mean, I think there's what you do in the kind of act of writing itself. But, you know, I mean, theatre is in, you know, it's funny to me that all these years later we still have to remake these arguments but it's important that we do but that theatre is an inherently political Mm. act and um, there are times in history and there are certainly other cultures in the world where the very act of making theatre is something that is at odds with the agenda of the state is dangerous Uh, and it's because you know the very act of gathering people together in a public space Mm you know um to be part of a story that's hopefully going to encourage them to think about the world in a different way is also an inherently political act you know and and i think that we particularly you know um in this world of kind of increasingly uh of authoritarian and populist politicians having the appeal that they do Mm -hmm. These are things that we cannot be too complacent about, you know? Mm. I would sort of say, you know, um, one of the things that sort of affected me most over the years was it was in 2001, I was part of a group from the National Theatre that went to South Africa as part of a kind of cultural exchange, Mm. you know, us pitching up, doing workshops, talks, you know, the kind of British Council-sponsored shebang. And, um, you know, (laughs) essentially playwriting has playwriting post-apartheid lost its way a bit in Mm -hmm. South Africa. Uh, Here, let us, your former colonisers, fix that for you. Sort that all out. (laughs) You know, my anecdote is absolutely apropos of that. It's a brilliant and sobering moment, which was that was that you know in the sec the first week was in Cape Town, the second week in Johannesburg. And um, so we were coming along and the workshops and discussions and everything sort of, all of them seemed to go quite well, Mm. you know, and people who came enjoyed them. Um, And until the the morning that was on subtext, basically, 
And um, so there was there was me and uh, the director Mick Gordon, and um, there might have been Tanika Gupta might have been there. Yeah. She was the other playwright who was on the trip. And then um, Mick had done some lovely work with them from Uncle Vanya, you know, mm-hmm. the famous kind of map reading scene with Ashtrov. And, right, yeah. And uh, Yelena, you know, he'd done some lovely work with them and that. Tanika and I were um, did some playwriting type stuff on subtext and we were became aware that the group became more and more stony-faced and cold and irritated and one or two burgeoning towards anger mm. and we were like I had no fucking clue you know to me yeah, we're yeah. like going what, what what's going, what's on? going on? on what have we done yeah you know and then like basically finally it might have been Mick as the director in the room who asked them what was wrong and basically one of the guys just said we've spent our whole lives being told that we cannot say what we want to say and we are not going to do that anymore you're coming here telling us that we have to hide what we want to say Ah. so this is why we're really really angry about this idea yeah yeah and um it was a good fucking lesson do you know what i mean it was a lesson in all sorts of things it's maybe a lesson in a kind of arrogance that yeah. you joked about, a, a, a post-colonial yeah, arrogance yeah. that you joked about. It's also uh, an idea, maybe about a Western idea about playwriting, mm-hmm. that while, you know, it might be quite good within the context of this hallowed institution here as part of the University of London mm-hmm. to be talking about five-act structures and subtext yeah. and arcs and uh, points. But within a different culture, actually these ideas might not be so valuable and there might be other storytelling ideas that are valuable yeah and also like the, the right to half say something comes from a position of incredible privilege yeah. where you can you have as many words as you need that's right that's exactly right and you've certainly got no one necessarily yeah. telling you that you yeah can't say it you can't yeah, say yeah. it you know in the way that they they were experienced too so so you know um it you know it's a it's a kind of you know it's almost kind of acts as a kind of a memento mori for me that you know that memory you know to 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 remember you know that we are in a relatively kind of privileged position and you know to put to put on you know uh it it would be a dangerous thing to put on an alan Aitborn comedy within some theater cultures you yeah. know yeah yeah. Uh, so you know, not to be complacent about any of that, and not to eschew that label either. Do you know what I mean? When it comes your way, occasionally. Of course, I'm not a playwright of, uh, you know, like Howard Brenton, you know, or David Edgar. You know, both brilliant playwrights of a different generation, and old friends. Uh, you know, but they're, you know, I don't, they make different work to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're. You know, they're maybe more kind of direct, maybe in terms of how they are, the way that they engage engage with politics, than I. But I'm, you know, I feel quite proud of a kind of seam in my work that, you know, that is interested in in um, in the world that we live in and why it's the way that it is and what are the power structures that mean it's that way and how do we interact with that, albeit on a kind of a kind of a a kind of a, 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 a level that's kind of where it's in, in the kind of bones of it all rather than being on the top line, you know? 
because that's that's me. You know, I haven't been able to write for four days because of the shenanigans in Westminster. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a thing. So um, a thing that the listening audience won't know is that I just did a small gesture that implied I wanted to kill myself when David mentioned Howard Brenton. Howard, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be rude. I don't know you at all. Um, but I'm because I think there's a cost, isn't there, in being if in in like the more politically engaged you are, the bigger the risk that history will not look on you kindly. What do you mean? What do you well, mean by do you know that? What? Like I just, it's, it's because I just directed, as a favour for a friend, I directed a Howard's... Uh, I directed Epsom Downs. Oh, yeah, I was in that play at university. Yeah, right, well, okay. I was a stage manager in that play. We did it at uni. And it's... And it's Oh my what do you God. mean that the plays are dated? Well, I think I mean obviously it's it's such a it's it's so specific, right? There's such a specific time and place. Yeah. Of course, it is dated, but there's also a thing where, like, if you read that as a woman who exists now in this world, and you look at the treatment of the female characters, not just by the male characters, but by the writer and to an extent the director in the creation of that mm. piece, you're like you fucking misogynist assholes! Mm. I shun your work, yeah. right? Which probably isn't fair, but also it feels fair. Um, <laughs> you know, and so having just, having just spent quite a lot of time essentially justifying to, having, be, having to be in the position of justifying to like a 20-something-year-old actress why this character, why it's okay that this 15-year-old uh, traveller girl is overtly sexualised and never has a space to speak against mm. that or um, it just made me really really it made me really angry and it just made me think that and and but but ang- anger at the politics that it espoused unknowingly, whereas yeah. it's you know it's as a play you know as a play about kind of a, pit, a snapshot of class and privilege. There's all sorts of really right on smart Marxist stuff in there. Yeah. Um. While completely neglecting mm. some other stuff that I really care about, so it just made me realise that as someone who kind of thinks about the work I make as quite consciously politically engaged. Yeah. Um, it's just made me realise that probably the price that I pay for that, should there be playtext of it one day, yeah. is that people will become a cunt in some way or other. Because well, that's how it goes, that's progress. Yeah, maybe they maybe they will and maybe they won't. But I agree, I mean, that kind of is, that is progress. And it's also, it's also actually to do with taste as well. I yeah. think people yeah, yeah. sort of, you know, I mean, it just is to do with taste you know as well and it's to do with but, also hang on hang on but also like fully rounded human like for example that particular character because you know yeah, the play right yeah so that particular character like it isn't a taste thing that she doesn't ever get to go you pervert <laughs> right yeah no but i that's think that's an oversight but what you yeah I, of course it's an oversight and i'm not arguing against that I think it was a play that's written at its time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's I think, the thing. And I think that because... You have to forgive it, because it is of its time. Well, it just whether you forgive it or not, it just is of its time, and it, and it doesn't do things that ordinarily a play might do now with regards yeah. to the way that that ca- particular character is He's drawn... And becomes human. And, yeah. and, and has a voice in the story, and has a, a you know... And all of that, but I, I think that, I think that, I don't know, it's just because, you know, I, I, so it's, it's so, 
how long is it now? So it's literally, so it's 24 years now. And just in those 24 years of working in the theatre, you know, I've seen th different things that have managements and audiences and cultures have interests in different areas and also different things being fashionable. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I, it may be that within another 40 years that 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 no bugger has any interest in Howard's play at all yeah. it but it may be that at that time that actually that you know it becomes fashionable to do to look at these plays that were written in the 1970s yeah. and that actually the way into it is because they're kind of interested in that particular seam of playwriting yes, as, yeah. as bananas as that might seem to us now do you no, know what I mean but, but, but yeah but absolutely as, as, as a seam within yeah. within the, the soil of well, yeah. metaphors right now. no 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 it, and so I think that you know so I think that one one can't just say it's to do with that but you're I essentially agree with the idea that it's just to do with progress you know it you know in because I also think people will see like the Me Too or whatever plays of today yeah. that are so that I find incredibly didactic and heavy-handed some of them yeah. and very very uh, orthodox and authoritarian, yeah. which I have a huge problem with. Like I think people will also look at those and be like, "Well, that's nonsense. What? How do we all exist in this together if you're just going to turn everyone into flesh cars?" Yeah, yeah, but I mean that's to do. But that's just to do with, isn't it? That's to do with when the thesis. Of a play becomes what's yeah. really With of the, overriding yeah, yeah. importance, yeah. you know. Yeah. And again, I would argue that there have been many periods in theatre history when that's been the case. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and you know that the, the kind of ebb and flow of that, you know, is is just is just some you know is something that happens. I I I um. You know, I sort of I I would just say though, as a theatre goer, that. You know, you get the kind of shifting um, fashions and tastes and interests of writers and theatre makers. Uh, generally, as a theatre goer, as much as a theatre maker, I mean, I I just have always enjoyed having a fairly diverse meal. Do you know what I yeah. mean? And I think that what <laughs> what happens is a gist. Yeah. Actually, you know, if I feel that I've had you know two or three plays that. Um, you know that are kind of quite thesis heavy, or yeah. or are quite handy and didactic, didactic in their relationship with their audience. Then I might give work like that a miss for a while. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And go and see a musical in the West yes. End. You know. Yes. And I and so I think counts. I think you know no one is kind of compelled to. No. Go, go and go and see all these no. plays except for me because it's <laughs> actually my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, so you know, I, I think uh, any more than anyone is compelled to to write these plays. Yeah. Actually, you know, um, I don't know. You know, yeah, I think I was probably I was probably just unfair to Epsom Downs because it was so self consciously political and a bit a bit kind of preachy. I um, sort of remember on my one hand. Yeah, I, but it's funny you talk about because you say, "Well, I know." I mean, I just remember my friends in it yeah. <laughs> more than I remember the play actually yeah. in the drama department at Exeter, and um, that two of the guys who were playing the horses, yes, being very vain before they went on, and one of them used to sort of stick a hairdryer on his prick. 
<laughs> and, and the other one is to try and dip, dip his prick in a pint of warm water to make That's, him swell up amazing or, or at least that they're not too small amazing <laughs> so you know poor Howard well I mean they're playing racehorses they're just uh, going into character yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? they're going to be, be well loud. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um god yeah Anyway, right. Um, I feel like I've been to- I've been talking to you for much longer than I'm supposed to already. Um, last question uh, is: When you you'll have heard me ask this to other people, you can interpret it as you wish. When you go from this place, yeah. By which I don't want you to think this office, but like this astral plane or this place in your career or theatre. Um, what do you want to leave behind? With regards to my That's to my work, uh, I mean, you can choose. Like, what, like I usually say, what do you want people to say about you? Well, I think I think given that we're doing this in the context of our work in the theatre, yeah. I want to sort of th- sit, think of something in terms yeah, yeah. of my work in the theatre rather than on a on any kind of general kind of but you're also allowed because it's you're also allowed to say if that's what's important. Like Dominic Cook was like, I just want people to like think I was a nice guy. Yeah. And like so if if that's what's important to you that's okay it's important that people know that what's important well, to I, us is actually There's kids. probably a couple of things that I'd like to say is that all right yeah. if I can say yeah there's probably a couple of things like that so that to to say so you know if I was ever invited on Desert Island Discs right. I would find it impossible to choose the one choose right. for me yeah. that was the one you know yeah. so it's it's true to me to say a couple of things um I think that the nicest thing anyone has ever said about me was 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 about ten years ago, and I won't say who it was. Was that was that was that someone said that I always tried to do the right thing by everyone, mm. and I thought that was a really nice thing, and I felt very choked. Yeah, and I thought if anyone more than that person that said it thought that about me after I was gone, then then I think that that, that would be great to be remembered in that way. In terms of my work as a as a playwright and within mm. the theatre, um, if anyone remembered me because they'd seen a play a play of mine and thought they'd had a really great night, mm. then I'd be really happy with that. Okay, nice. That's nice. That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Um, is there anything you feel like you haven't said or you want to say or you should correct? This is your moment. Um, no, not at all. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been really, really interesting to talk about the stuff to do with school and class yeah. and how that relates to um, the writing in terms yeah. of permission and also and perspective. Because I think often when people talk to me, when people do talk to me about it, if you get a journalist that is interested in it, or I talked to Simon Stevens a bit about it year before, last year. Um, on the court podcast, I think I think we, we often talk about it in terms of the subject matter, mm-hmm. like I in, in a in a kind of way, like because you went to a posh school and then you went to university and then you've kind of worked within the theatre, whatever, loads of middle class people, you can kind of write the knot of the heart, and also because you come from where you come, you can write in Basildon. So there's yeah. kind of kind of quite a literal way of talking about it to do with subject matter, but actually in many ways I've really enjoyed 
the thornier and knottier area that you've been talking about that clearly you've experienced somewhat yourself mm. which is to do with kind of permission and perspective actually somehow you know um so i you know i hope that people that have li- listening to the podcast you know i ho- hope that's something that, that maybe they reflect upon because it is a it's a complicated it is a truly complicated thing because it's bound up with your identity as a person yeah yeah actually. it's so exposing even yeah. to give space to the thought i think it's it's a tricky thing and massive if you're someone like me who was terrified when they went to private school because they didn't know what cutlery to use mm. and that never ever when we got we got the parents of kids who gave us an odd lift home to Romford my brother and I didn't let them drop them outside our house because we didn't want them to see what our house looked like mm-hmm. so those things were fucking massive yeah. And to make a journey from that kind of feeling to having, to try, trying to find a voice and sometimes having a very clear voice within the theatre is, it's, it's, it's a real journey that, you know? Mm. People think I'm a very different person now to the person they knew at 17 that was very shy and taciturn. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cause it's, because you, you keep changing, right? You keep changing. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a I think there is a thing about the permission that feels really important to me. Like my one of my sisters is a brilliant drawer, drawer and painter, um, draftswoman. Draftswoman, that'll do. That's a word. Um, and she <laughs> and at school, she I mean she didn't go to the school I did at school. She excelled at that um, and excelled at art. And at parents' evening of her A level year the teacher took her aside, took my parents aside, her former teacher and was like, well, look, this is the only thing she's any good at and she's never going to make a career of that. Oh, awful. And, and the, I mean, she's actually a landscape architect now and a successful, you know, a relatively yeah. successful one, but um, the, no one ever said that to me. And so, weirdly, like, the, it was, I mean, I was a scholarship kid, but it would have been worth paying for no one to ever say that to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, if we, you know, actually, what it would be worth is paying for no one to ever say that to anyone. In yes, all of, of course. Um, so yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. No, thank you. I've really enjoyed Pleasure. it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Legacy Tapes. This is just a quick correction. Uh, The sharp-eared amongst you might have heard me refer to Mike Bartlett as the artistic director of The Bush early on in the podcast. Obviously, I meant Mike Bradwell and was having a stupid five minutes. So, um, sorry to all of the Mikes. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) do forgive me. Um, Also, while I'm here and I'm talking to you, if uh, you would like to make a donation to help support the work of the podcast and maybe make sure that I do my uh, research a little bit better and don't make so many mistakes, you can now do so at patreon.com slash the legacy tapes. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.